following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Of the Lord from John 16, 5 through 15. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Our mission at Sacred City Church, if you've been around, you've probably heard this. Uh, We come back to it week in and week out. Our mission is to make disciples plant churches and renew the city. That's, that's what we've been about since day one. That's what we'll be about until this church closes its doors, which is hopefully never until Jesus comes back and returns and everybody's gonna go up and be with Jesus forever. But within that mission of making disciples, planting churches, renewing the city, there are a couple of big implications, things that, that have to happen in order for that mission to be fulfilled. And those two big implications are this. First, that those who are already Christians, those who have professed faith in Jesus, are growing in their understanding. They're, like we sing about, growing to be more Christ-like, to be more like Jesus. And that's a lifelong pursuit. Nobody is completely sanctified. For the rest of our lives, we're on this trajectory of becoming from one degree of glory to the next like Jesus. So that means nobody can be stagnant or at least not stagnant for long, that we're always on this growth continuum. And the other piece is that in addition to Christians growing to become more like Christ, is that there are new believers entering the family. That there are people who are outside, who are uh, separated from God, who are now by the gospel connected to God, that they have this new faith, and in this faith, they have a new life in Christ. So those are the two main implications uh, of us fulfilling this mission of making disciples, planting churches, and renewing the city. Now, these are also the primary, primary indicators that the gospel is at work. The good news of what Jesus has done and what he will do when he returns is at work producing a healthy church. If we're a healthy church, we're gonna have those two pieces as we pursue the mission of making disciples, planting churches, renewing. Christians are growing, new people are coming to faith. But like any good endeavor, which I believe the mission of this church is definitely one of those things, there are always obstacles, there are always challenges to overcome. And if you're in missional community, you've probably felt those, you've experienced those, you've seen those in the lives of other people, but I guarantee you've definitely experienced that personally within your own life. And without oversimplifying every challenge or, or the, these challenges that we face, I, th- I think we can put them in three different categories that help us make sense of what's going on as we face these obstacles. I think the, the first category that we can say, okay, this is an obstacle for us either coming to faith or growing in our faith in Jesus is a cognitive obstacle. That, that we lack understanding of what scripture teaches, that we have questions or there's some ignorance about the message or the content of the gospel or what scripture teaches and what it looks like to live godly lives. And I think a big piece of this, especially for people who are coming to faith or, or for them to come to faith, is that there are a lot of misinterpretations about what Christian, Christianity is and what it isn't. I think there's a lot of um, stereotypes that are 
incorrect about who Christians are and the type of life they're supposed to lead. I think even there are people who look at some doctrines of the Christian faith and say, that seems narrow-minded, that seems closed off, and so I'm offended, and because I'm offended by this one thing, which is probably a tertiary issue, I'm going to discount all of the rest. Right, so there's this cognitive thing where, man, I just don't know, I don't understand an intellectual barrier that not yet Christians have and Christians have where we say, you know, I don't understand this. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Now, the, the second barrier is maybe just a, a step further into this where maybe we understand what Scripture's teaching, but we aren't convinced of it. So where pe- people know the truth, they know the teaching of scriptures, but they're not bought into it, they're not living it out, where the cost is too high, where they say, oh, to live that way, to be like that, man, that's a high cost, I don't know if I can do it. It it means sacrificing the things that I find comfort in or, or convenience, it robs me of pleasure or status or the things that I just really cherish in my life, and so I'm just not bought in. And so you hear people say, I think in missional community, you can hear this, people say, you know, I know the Bible teaches that, I know that's what it says, but that's just not for me. I, I prefer it to do it my way, I, you, know, I, you know, it's helpful, scripture's helpful, but you know, I just rather do my own thing. That is an awareness of the truth without a conviction of the truth. In that sense, with this type of person, truth is like a ping pong ball that bounces off a statue. Right, all day long, you can tell them the truth, you can tell them the truth, but it just pop, pop, it doesn't, it doesn't sink in, it doesn't get down into the heart where they're really convinced, and, and I think this is one of the reasons why in the, um, the Western church, in the American church, why one of the biggest critiques of Christians is that, oh, they're all hypocrites. They say one thing, they say they believe one thing, and then they do another. That's why, because there's not a conviction, there's not a, a buy-in. I, they, they know what to do, but they don't do it. So the first issue is a a cognitive issue. The second one is a matter of conviction. And the third barrier that we face is a capacity issue. See, here's the the thing that I've noticed and that I feel this oftentimes, that that we come to faith, we've got this buy-in of of what it looks like to follow Jesus, and we look at it, man, it's just beautiful. This idea to, to be known by God and to know God, to to be known by others and to know others deeply to be generous and hospitable and loving and compassionate and forgiving and all of these things and and to to give our lives to the mission of the church, to what Jesus is calling his people to be and to do. And so we see this beauty of it and and yet we're like, oh, that's so cool, that's so neat, I I wanna be a part of that, yet there's this, this barrier where we feel incapable of doing it. We get kinda get, caught or stuck, we get overwhelmed because really when you think about it, it feels like an impossible task, right? How am I supposed to run my kids from school to sports to music to this and then spend time with my missional community family? How am I gonna pay my bills, make sure I got food to eat and still practice generosity toward the church and to other people in my life? It feels like we're limited on our resources of time, of energy, money. And so we see this call, like what it looks like to follow Jesus when he talks to all the people that he did through the gospels and and this call to come follow me. You see it to the disciples, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. What do they have to do? They have to leave some of that life behind. There's a new way of living that just seems, honestly, kind of impossible. And, And I think that, I think, occasionally we run into people who look like they have a conviction issue, like they're not convinced of what scripture teaches, but really what's going on is this, this third issue, it, it, a capacity issue. They just, they have the conviction in a sense, but they just feel like I'm incapable of doing this. I, I would imagine that all of you can sort of resonate, whether you're a Christian or not yet a Christian, that you have, you can feel, you've sensed, you've encountered one of those three barriers, if not all of them. And if, if we're honest about these, these barriers feel really overwhelming. And it's definitely stunting to the mission of the church. Because this is not like an occasional barrier that we face. 
among a small group of people, when we think about these barriers, it's something that we frequently face, and it's not just a few people, but really it's everyone. And then you think about it, if everyone's having these struggles with some of these barriers, and then you put 20 of those people together in a missional community, and then you have four or five missional communities among the church, how is it that anything ever gets done? How is it that any growth, how is it that anybody ever comes to faith? How is any of this possible? And you think about it. If you really think about it, the mission of Sacred City Church is actually impossible. Every week I stand up here being a champion of the mission and and I'm just really honestly setting you up for failure. That is, unless we understand the role of the Holy Spirit and his power in our lives. See, every barrier we face to become a Christian, to grow as a Christian, is insurmountable in ourselves, but if we understand the Holy Spirit, we can hop over those. And that's today's focus as we look in the third article of the Apostles' Creed when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, a few years ago, Francis Chan wrote this book called The Forgotten God. And in this book, he identified what what has really been true uh, within the Western church for decades, if not centuries, where, where he points out that the most neglected member of the Trinity, right, we, we believe that God is one God in three persons, the most neglected member of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. We, we pray to God, the Father, we worship him for the plan that he's laid out, we, we pray to the Son that he'd intercede for us. We thank him for his obedience and his sacrifice, but oftentimes we're quiet about the Holy Spirit. Like, if you just think about it, when's the last time that you, without promptings, like, I'm gonna pray to the Holy Spirit today? You can even ask, ask Trent, like, some of the music that we sing, like he did a really good job today pulling out some of the, the songs that really speak about the Holy Spirit, but like week to week, if you're not thinking about it, you can skip over the Holy Spirit in a lot of ways. Now this isn't because, this is not because, we, we don't neglect the Holy Spirit because he's free-spirited. Like he's hard to pin down, he's kind of like doing his own thing, roaming around, the Holy Spirit's distracted. That, that's not the case, in fact, when, when we understand who and what the Holy Spirit is, we understand that the Holy Spirit is actually the most active person in the Trinity. Now, that, that, for, to, to just say that, make that statement, to say that the Holy Spirit is the most active person in the Trinity can address several of the misunderstandings that we have about the Holy Spirit which cause us to neglect the Holy Spirit. First of all, to say that he's the most active means that the Holy Spirit is playing a continuous and vital role. From Genesis chapter one, where the Spirit of God hovers over the waters before creation, to Revelation 22, the Spirit is at work. And you better believe the Spirit is at work right now. The only thing is that we're typically clueless about the Spirit and what the Spirit is doing because the Spirit is operating in such a way where its, its mission, its MO, is not to draw attention to itself. Right? The Spirit doesn't go around doing the works that, called, that, that God has appointed it, the Spirit to do. The Spirit is doing and say, hey, look at me, here's what I'm doing. I just want to give you an update. The Spirit doesn't do that. The Spirit is at work to glorify Jesus. So so in a sense, the Spirit is a a spotlight that is always shining on Jesus, and Jesus is a spotlight that's always shining on the Father. The Spirit is here to glorify Jesus and the Father. And the Holy Spirit has quite the workload. In creation, the the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters, The Holy Spirit prays for us. The Holy Spirit uh, invigorates us. The Holy Spirit produces faith. The Holy Spirit takes the truth that we hear and know and applies it to our hearts. The Holy Spirit comforts us. The Holy Spirit assures us of God's presence. The Holy Spirit speaks to us and counsels us. And the Holy Spirit empowers us. 
See, the Holy Spirit's active. And while the Holy Spirit empowers us, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force that we associate loosely with God. The Holy Spirit is himself a person. Now, I I think a lot of times, the times that we do pray to the Holy Spirit, when we ask the Holy Spirit for something, we tend to treat the Holy Spirit like a spiritual energy drink. Like, Holy Spirit, would you just fill me up so I can go and crush this day? Would you fill me up so I can go and do it? But to treat the Holy Spirit like a spiritual energy drink misses out on the personal aspect of the Holy Spirit. That, that he himself, the Holy Spirit, is a person who shares the essence and the character of God the Father and Jesus the Son, who himself has his own personal traits. And so when we ask for the Holy Spirit, when we say, Holy Spirit, would you help me? Would you do this? Would you fill me up? That ask is really a relational ask. Holy Spirit, would you be near to me? Can I have a personal encounter with you, God, the Holy Spirit? Now we... we, We tend to think that the only way to get that sort of relationship with God, that that personal relationship dynamic is through Jesus, right? It's this idea of like person to person. Like Jesus, you know, he's God in the flesh, so me in the flesh, I relate to Jesus, which is true, but but we miss out on what the Spirit is doing. And and here's here's what we see this. When we see this person to person relationship, you look back through the Gospels and the disciples Like Jesus' 12 disciples had that personal relationship with Jesus. And we think, well, to have that relationship with Jesus must look like this, what they had. And listen, it was sweet. What the disciples had was sweet, so sweet. In fact, we look back at it, and and it could be enviable unless, again, you understand the Holy Spirit. And through John chapter 14, in fact, why don't you turn, I want everybody to grab a pew Bible today. We're gonna be in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, kind of bouncing around. It's page 525 in the pew Bible. And through these couple of chapters, Jesus is telling his disciples that one day he will leave them from his presence with them in the flesh and return to the Father in heaven. In fact, if you go to John chapter 16, verse five, which is where we started our passage reading today, Jesus says, but now I am going to him, that is God the Father, who sent me. So he's telling them, listen, I'm, I'm taking off. And even if you go back to John chapter 14, he's saying the same thing, that, that I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna go back to the Father. I'm gonna go prepare, prepare a place for you. He's saying, I'm leaving that there's gonna be a day when the disciples need direction. There's a day when the disciples need help or they need assurance of God's presence and Jesus won't be there to offer it to them like he did throughout his ministry. And when, when Jesus tells his disciples this, Jesus says that his disciples are wrecked. They're just like, they're destroyed by this idea that Jesus would leave them. How could, and, and you see this, if you keep reading in verse five, but now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things you, to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They're just crushed by the sorrow. It's like, this, it's like when your best friend tells you that they're moving across the country, right? They're 10, 12 hours away and it's like, now we have social media and stuff where we can stay connected, but back in the day, I remember when I was maybe like in first or second grade, my best buddy, Tom Hutchinson, uh, they told us that, that they were moving and they were only moving like 20 minutes away, but I just remember being crushed. And it's like, that's the thing. It's like, you, you're losing out on this best friend. They're crushed by this. That Jesus is gone, gone. They're so sorrowful, in fact, that they can't even ask, like, where are you going, Jesus. They're dumbfounded by this. They're stunned. And then 
Later on, if, if you jump down a little bit further in chapter 16 in verse 20, a- after the shock wears off, Jesus tells them, listen, it, it's gonna be okay. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. When, you say, when Jesus says truly, truly, he's meaning, he's really meaning what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will le- weep and lament. You won't leap, you might leap. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And then he gives us this illustration, like when a woman is, woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. It's, gruel, it's grueling pain. It hurts, it's agonizing. Her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy of a human being has been born into the world. Now listen, I know there are a lot of ladies in this room that can relate to this. You felt the agony of childbirth, right? And it's like so hard, you got blood vessels burst in your faith, but you look pretty the whole time, I promise you, babe. You got blood vessels bursting, you're just sweating, it's so hard. I mean like, and kudos to you women because I couldn't do that. It's like you know the pain, the sorrow, the agony. Yet somehow that baby comes out and it's like, yeah, I'd probably do that again. Like, it doesn't make sense. But this is the kind of transition that Jesus is talking about. Yeah, you're gonna, your heart's gonna be torn in two and it's gonna hurt, but listen, there's gonna be a day when your sorrow will turn to joy. And here, check this out in, in verse 23. Here's what happens. He says, in that day, this is John 16, verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now listen, here's what I know we do. We read this, we read these couple verses and we have this tendency to start rattling off our Christmas list, right? What's the wish list? Man, I I really wish I had a bigger house. I wish I had, my marriage was stronger. I wish I had better behaved kids. I wish my job was less stressful. I wish I could go on longer vacation. Like, we start listing off all of these things. In some sense, we're all guilty of doing this, of treating Jesus as a glorified Santa Claus because we say, he did say, whatever you ask, this is whatever. Like, a motorcycle fills on underneath whatever. And as we ask for these things, it's like we start to wonder if Jesus is not being truthful, even though he said, truly, truly, I say to you. We start get to be irritated because that stuff doesn't materialize on our timeline. Like, like when are you gonna drop this motorcycle in my garage? You know, when's this boat coming? And when this starts to happen, the question is like, well, well maybe I'm asking for too much. You know, maybe I'm just asking too much from God. That I just gotta dial back my request a little bit instead of a, you know, a, a, a 3,000 square foot home and just settle with a 2,000 foot square home. And so we kind of start to dial back our prayers. But I don't think the problem is that we're asking for too much. I think the problem is that we're asking for too little when we start listing off the hopes and desires and dreams. When we, when we start praying for the things that are on our, our dream boards. Those are too small. And before you write me off as some name it and claim it preacher, you gotta hear me out here because back in John chapter 14 and verses 13 and 14, this is why I want you to to flip back with me because I'm not making this up. I want you to see this for yourself. In verses 13 and 14 of chapter 14, Jesus basically says the same exact thing when he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's the same thing. Now what this is doing, when you're reading the Bible and you see repeated phrases, repeated ideas, repeated words, this is communicating something to us. And what this is doing in John chapter 14 and here toward the end of John chapter 16, these two statements are functioning as literary bookends. And in these two literary bookends, Jesus is showing us what the biggest thing we could possibly ask for is. Take a look. Keep going in John chapter 14. This is verse 16 and 17. 
Jesus says, and I will ask the Father on our behalf, and he will give you another helper. Now listen, this idea, like, when the disciples were with Jesus, they experienced Jesus as their helper. This, this idea that Jesus allowed the disciples to do something that the disciples were unable to do in their own capacity. So this is not a derogatory term. This is not a, a belittling term as the helper, as you might think, like if I'm baking in the kitchen, or I don't bake, but if my wife were baking in the kitchen with our sons who are five and three or almost three, and she's, oh, you're my helper, it's like she's patronizing them. They're not really helping. They're making things worse. That's not the way that it works with Jesus. That Jesus is actually a helper who can transcend your own ability. Now, Jesus is saying that if you ask, or when I ask, when I ask the Father, he will give you another helper who will be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be within you. Did you catch that? Did you see what Jesus says is the best thing you can ask for? The biggest, the best, the most powerful prayer you can pray is that Jesus would give us the Holy Spirit this new helper who comes not just to be with us in the way that Jesus was with us and then he left to go back to heaven to be with the Father, but the helper who's with us and in us. Now when you understand this about the Holy Spirit, that he's not just with us but in us, that he has the, the, the spirit of truth, that's why Jesus says what he does if you go back to John 16, verse seven. If you wanna flip there, John chapter 16, verse seven, when Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Jesus isn't lying here. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now we read this, and it's like, better off without Jesus? That doesn't make sense. How can we, there's no way that's, like we look at this and say Jesus is just being modest here, right? Oh Jesus, he's, he's being humble, it's, it's, you know, it's like, Jesus being humble. It's like, oh Jesus, don't be silly, it's so much better if, if you're here with us instead of the spirit. But Jesus isn't lying. He's telling us the truth. And I think that this is where we get stuck because a lot of times we can't help but think that things would be so much better if Jesus were here with us in the flesh. Like how much better would it be if Jesus was right next to us at work with a family, if he was sitting in our missional community? We'd have so much help it's like there would be no debate about the resurrection like because Jesus could just show up and say hey check it out watch me walk through a wall you know no debate about it any sort of theological vagueness where there's disagreement or debate among Christians like Jesus could say nope here's what it is I'm the son of God I can tell you this help with decisions that'd be nice like which house do I buy which neighborhood do I move into what career should I pursue Jesus could tell you. And then just the fact that you have God accessible to you, right? Oh yeah, Jesus is right here. I don't have to question if God is with me because there's a man named Jesus Christ from Nazareth who is right here with me. We think of how much ministry would get done, how much more effective the church would be, how we'd have so much better publicity we'd start to experience some of the growth that we want to see in the mission of the church to make disciples, plant churches, renew the city. Jesus would be like, done. We got it going. It's popping. But here's why you're wrong in thinking this. Here's why you're wrong to say, man, I'd rather have Jesus here with me. Have you ever been to a conference, or maybe not, even not a conference, maybe it's like a sporting uh, a game or something where there's hundreds, even thousands of people there with you, and you 
you really want to connect with, you know, maybe the star athlete or the keynote speaker, and you're in there, and you're just like, I just want to get, I just want to get a couple minutes of their time. I want to tell them, I want to ask them a question, I want to do something with them. And you, you probably, if you if you have the the guts or the desire to do that, you stand in line, which could be for anywhere from 45 minutes to a couple hours, just to spend 45 seconds with them, maybe a minute tops. And in the line, you're standing there and you're thinking, you're rehearsing the question through your head, and as soon as you get up to the line, you, you basically, you get starstruck, you forget. You forget what you're even gonna ask them and you get a signature and you walk away. It's like, shoot, I just wasted all my time for that. See, if Jesus were here in the flesh, that's what it would be like. Only way worse because there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world. That means there are 2.2 billion people trying to get a sliver of Jesus' time. Now, even when Jesus was doing his ministry in Galilee, around Galilee, and he's doing his stuff, like there were even times where he just gets exhausted. Like you see his physical humanness limited him on his ability to do ministry where he has to retreat, where he has to go away, where he gets overwhelmed. He can only be in one place at a time. He gets fatigued because he's in high, such high demand. And you can see this all over the place, how Jesus just brings people in. Crowded houses, crowded streets. And so in this sense, if Jesus were here in the flesh, it's like you gotta grab a number and wait. And you better hope you don't get number 2.2 billion because you're gonna wait for a long time. And when you get to Jesus at that little signature booth where he stands, you may be you'll maybe get 60 seconds with him throughout your whole entire lifetime. And I don't know about you, but I've got so many problems that 60 seconds isn't gonna be enough time for Jesus to help me sort through it. By sending the Holy Spirit, this problem vanishes. The problem with accessibility vanishes because Just like Jesus was with us, the Holy Spirit is with us, but now, for those who are in Christ, the Spirit will be in us. And when Jesus is saying this in in John 14, when he's telling his disciples, the Spirit will be, because at that moment, the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. Right? At at that moment in time, the Holy Spirit hadn't come down. But but if you look at Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, that's when Jesus goes up, well, shortly after Jesus goes up, and then the Spirit comes down. See, that's the day that Jesus was talking about when the Spirit would come and would be in us. Now, this idea that the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would be in us is a completely new idea. And you might say, well, Sam, you just said, you know, since Genesis chapter one, the Spirit's been active doing all this stuff and all through the prophets and the Old Testament and all these narratives that we see and then get into, you know, like, what's going on? Where's the Spirit at? Well, okay, yeah, the Holy Spirit has been with us in certain ways. And you can see this, that there are some certain people throughout the Old Testament who are anointed where the Holy Spirit is upon them to do a specific task. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the people who gives us a perfect example of this is King David. And when, in, I think it's Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 16, where Samuel, the, the, um, the judge, no, what is he? He's something. Samuel's like the, the guy high up on the totem pole in Israel. And he comes and he comes to Jesse's house and Jesse has a bunch of older brothers or older sons and you know, God tells Samuel that one of these sons is gonna be the king of Israel and what he doesn't know is that David is off in the field somewhere keeping track of the sheep and finally Samuel says, no, no, none of these older brothers are gonna do it. It's this younger brother that's gonna be the king of Israel. And so in that moment, when Samuel anoints this young man named David with oil, What happens, it says that the Holy Spirit rushed upon him from that day forward. The language is important. The Spirit was upon him, not within him. But even with the Spirit being upon him, David goes on to do incredible things. He, you know, he got the whole thing with Goliath where this little boy defeats a a giant of a man where David not only makes himself prosperous but the whole nation of Israel where the, David is gifted, where he can do things that most normal average men can't do. He's, he's powerful, David's a hero. There's all these things that elevate David because he's been anointed by the Spirit. And we see this and we look through the Old Testament and it's like, wow, this is really impressive. And it's like, 
if we get the opportunity in heaven, if we go to, to see, stand face to face with David, like, we're gonna be a little bit of fanboys and ask, like, oh, David, tell me what it was like to defeat Goliath. Tell me what it was like to defeat all the people, to have your back up against the wall and still triumph day after day, war after war, battle after battle. How, tell me what that was like. And David's gonna look us in the face, every single average, ordinary, normal Christian, and he's gonna say, who cares about that? Tell me what it was like to have the Holy Spirit in you. He didn't know what that was like. We get to. He's gonna wonder, what's it like to have the power of the helper on standby? What was it like to have the comforter, the counselor near to you at all times? Anytime you need him, you turn to him in prayer. See, the power that was with David is now within those who believe in Jesus. And it's actually through the Holy Spirit that we get to have this deep relationship with Jesus that we envy the disciples for, except we have it way better because the Holy Spirit is within us who believe. Now it gets cooler, and it's way cooler, because unlike David who had the Holy Spirit upon him, there is no fear for us of losing the Holy Spirit when we sin and mess up. We see this with David. Uh, the whole deal with Bathsheba, he has an affair, he kills, you know, it's just a mess. David's kind of a train wreck. He's not really the hero you think he is. But when David gets convicted about the sins he has done in Psalm 50 or 51, 51, I think, he says, he's pleading with God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And you gotta wonder, like why is he scared of that? Like there must be something that the Spirit could be lifted from because it's actually true. With David, the Spirit, it happened to, to Saul before him. Like the first king of Israel, he was anointed to be a king and then God removed his spirit from him and then Saul became a train wreck. But David's praying, take now your Holy Spirit from me. But here's the good news. For Christians, we don't have to worry about that. Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is with us and in us forever. That means no sin that you do. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, no sin will ever nullify the legitimacy of the Holy Spirit being within you. That is good news, folks. In John 14, 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not, I'm not just gonna be here and bounce and not come back for you. I'm gonna send my spirit See, if your faith is in Jesus, you have been adopted into God's family, and with that adoption, you are given the Holy Spirit, just as we heard this morning, that Christ, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit is working within our hearts to give us language that we don't yet have to cry out to God as our Father. And with the Holy Spirit being with us, giving us that voice to cry, Ephesians 1 tells us that the Holy Spirit keeps us and seals us in that faith. That if you have believed in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, and it's not up to you to hold on to faith for the rest of your life. It's the Holy Spirit who's holding on to you. It's our guarantee of inheritance. It's like the Holy Spirit is a down payment. It's like layaway. Jesus put his people, his bride on layaway. Here's the guarantee. Here's my down payment. The Holy Spirit is now with you and in you, and it's proof that I'm gonna come back and bring you to where I am because Jesus is preparing a room for us. Having the Holy Spirit live inside of you, in your heart, is proof that your life is hidden in Christ. Now when you understand this, when you, when you hear this, do you start to see how having the Holy Spirit in us is better than having Jesus with us? Or no? Do you, you see that? Now let me tie this back to the three main hurdles of gospel growth as I, as I wrap up here. For the people who feel, man, I'm stuck, my obstacle, I feel incapable, I feel overloaded, I feel bogged down, I feel overwhelmed, right? This, these are the people who see the beauty and the goodness of a life that's lived following Jesus in all 
in all matters of life, right? The people who, who have a desire to love their neighbor as their self, to be in community and to be on mission, the people who desire to be generous and hospitable and gracious people, the people who desire to, to, to live within the parameters that God has put for us to protect us and to glorify him within our sexuality, the, the way that God changes us and glorifies us in our character, in the fruit of the spirit, to be more like Jesus, to be open and honest and vulnerable, to lead our families well, to love our families well, to, to lead and to love our missional communities well. But for those people who hear all this stuff and feel bogged down, you need to realize this. That though it seems all out of your reach, though it seems too hard and that you're incapable and it's exhausting, like, that's actually the correct feeling. You should feel that way if you're trying to do life in your own power. See, if you're trying to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit and you feel like you're winning, your version of discipleship, your version of the Christian life is a substandard life of what Scripture portrays of a life of following Jesus. If you feel like you're just crushing it, you're not doing it right. But if you look at this and feel, man, I, I want to do that stuff. I have a desire to do that stuff. The good news is that the Holy Spirit is now in you and has given you all you need for life and godliness. See, if you, if you, you have this mentality of, man, I, I'm crushing it, or if you look at it and you see, you know, that this stuff about living a godly life is for the A-team Christians, right, the ones that are like on this level, not for me. But that means that you're neglecting the Holy Spirit. You're forgetting the power of the Holy Spirit and what he can do in your life. You're ignoring, you're failing to ask for the greatest gift that you could ever ask for. If you're trying to live the Christian life without depending upon the Holy Spirit, you are living a blasphemy. If you're trying to do what Jesus has called you to do and you're trying to do it in your own power, then you're, that's, that's flagrant arrogance because you don't have that kind of capability. None of us do. It's a rejection of the gospel. It's a failure to see how badly you need God's help in salvation, that how badly you need the spirit to not only just pro, to, to declare, declare the truth, but to apply the truth in your heart, but also within your life. So hear this, Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This was not written for professional athletes, believe it or not. Philippians 4.13 was written for ordinary, everyday Christians called to live a radical life of following Jesus day in and day out to do the work that God has called us to do that is impossible within our own capabilities, but completely possible with God. See, it, it, when we have communion, we have this relationship with the Holy Spirit, this is what our dialogue sounds like. Man, this life is tough, but I have all I need. Yeah, I'm, I'm at my max. I'm at critical capacity, but the Holy Spirit is able to power me. Now, this doesn't mean that we go and we sign up for every little good thing that we can be busy with. That does not, it's not what it means. It's like, okay, yeah, I got all the power I need. Just fill up my plate, fill up my plate. That, that's not the way that the Spirit works. The Spirit is also our counselor. Our, he guides us. He helps us to discern what the good works are that God has called for us to do or called us to do personally and then gives us the power to live into this. See, God will not empower you to do the things that are not yours to do. This is the difference between what our capabilities are or what our role is when we're empowered by the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit can actually only do himself. And when we have that relationship, we start to see the distinguishing marks. And it frees us from punishing ourselves from taking on what we can't do. Now let me just show you. I'm really closing up here. John 16 shows us a couple of these things. That we, first of all, can relinquish the obligation or the feeling that we have to be the one to 
to convince or to convict sinners that they're doing the wrong thing and they need to do the right thing. See, I, I got that tendency all day long. I know you probably do too. You sit in mission communities like, well, this person just needs to do this and they need to believe this and then you know, things will turn out. We have this tendency of trying to force people into getting it taking what they know and to, to what they believe, but the Holy Spirit is the only one who can do that. The only one, the Holy Spirit is the only one that, <coughs> excuse me, the only one who can take what, the content that we have in our heads and move it down to our hearts. That's what John 16 verses eight through 11 says. He says, and when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they did not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now it's not saying, oh, now with the Spirit, now with his help you can do, no, no, he says the Spirit, he will convict. The Spirit is the one who brings conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. See, the Spirit is one who takes the truths of the gospel that that we are called to proclaim and apply them into the hearts of people. And he does it in a way that even on our best day that we couldn't even possibly dream of doing. That does not mean we don't speak up. That doesn't mean that there's no accountability among the church to speak up and say, hey, brother, I think you're sinning. Iron sharpens iron. That's one of the most gracious things that we can do to one another in love and with truth to say, brother, it seems like you're out of step with the gospel. That's what Paul did to Peter in Galatians. So yeah, we, we still step up and we speak up, but oftentimes, prayer is more productive than prodding. Prayer is more productive than prodding because the spirit can convict in a way that we cannot prod people into being. This is part of asking Jesus for anything is asking the Holy Spirit not only to convict us so we can grow but to convict other people so that they would repent and experience times of refreshing and faithfulness. Now this might be the best thing that you could possibly ask for someone else on their behalf. And by the way, that's proof that you actually believe the Holy Spirit, like we confess in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Holy Spirit is the one who does the convicting. Again, that doesn't relinquish us from speaking truth and love. In fact, it empowers us to obey what Jesus calls us to do into speaking truth and love. And trusting that as we speak, the ball is in the Spirit's court. The Spirit is gonna do. If anything, the Holy Spirit gives us the boldness to speak up to stop being cowards, I know that that's an issue, but I just don't feel comfortable talking about it. Or I just feel like it's more, our relationship will be better off if I can just sweep this under the rug. No, no, the Holy Spirit emboldens us to speak up when we need to. He prompts us to say what might be the unpopular truth. Now this is exactly what happened at Pentecost when the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're emboldened to proclaim the gospel and they start out like this man of Jesus who you killed, right? They point the finger. It's offensive. It might be unpopular, but it is the truth, and the Holy Spirit gives us a boldness to step into that, and we can embrace that knowing that with the Holy Spirit's help, we are mouthpieces for truth. That's what verses 12 through 15 tell us, that the Spirit leads us, he guides us into truth. Jesus says, I have many things to say to you, but cannot bear them now. You cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He is leading us into truth. He can take our imperfection stabs at, or imperfect stabs at saying truth, at speaking truth, and he can sanctify those things. He can use them in powerful ways to point people to Jesus, and it's in that the Holy Spirit is applying the gospel to people's hearts in new ways that brings forth the growth that we long to see as we make disciples plant churches renew the city. That he takes non-believers who were once in darkness and brings them into the light of truth. He takes Christians who have been walking with the Lord for months and years, decades even, and reveals the truth and brings us into the light in a whole new way. 
See, understanding the role of the Spirit is key for us in living life in community and on mission. Of devoting ourselves to the mission that God has called us to. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings forth the fruit in our lives. We don't, we don't hand make that. That's a spirit producing. It's a spirit who works in a way that draws others near to Christ, that renews our city, that changes, will one day change and renew all things. Now, I used to joke in our visitor forums and, and say, like, yeah, we're charismatic. Like, charism- I believe in the Holy Spirit. Right, so I believe the spirits at work. That's what charismatic means. Even like, I used to joke that we're charismatic with a seatbelt. Like, we're charismatic, but you won't see us waving flags. Like, we're we're probably not going to have people speaking in tongues. Not that we don't believe in it, but it, there's a few things that Paul lays out in, as far as order among the church. There's, there's things that we might say. You know, we believe in those things. We believe the spirits at work, but we just kind of like hold back. We're restraining the spirit. That's the whole charismatic with the seatbelt. And we have a desire to be spirit-led. And there are some places where the spirit-led idea has been just like devolved into just pure craziness. It's like, that's not what we're after. But I'm ready. I'm ready to unbuckle the seatbelt. I'm ready to stop restraining the spirit in my own life within this church and asking what Jesus tells us to ask for, that we would have the Holy Spirit. Not only, like we know now, for those who are in faith, we have the Holy Spirit with us and in us, but now that the Holy Spirit would do the work that only he can do. And that we partner with him in a unique uh, way where we can see the church grow as the Spirit is at work, driving the mission forward. That we can see people growing in godliness as they're transformed, as they, they understand the truths of the gospel, they hear and know and now believe and are convinced and convicted of them. Those who, who see the life that we're called into and say, I've got all that I need for life and godly. The Spirit is empowering me to what I've been called to. To see new life pop up around us. To use this baptistry that we have to see the new people coming in faith be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. I'm ready to be a functional believer in the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you. I'm ready to, to deepen my relationship with the Holy Spirit. Stop treating him like a spiritual energy drink. I'm ready to be more prayerful, more, more receptive, more open to being used to whatever the Holy Spirit, and to be more worshipful of the Holy Spirit. Will you join me with that? Father, we thank you. No, Spirit, we thank you. We thank you for what you do that though we overlook you and that we probably have a lot to repent over as far as how we've neglected you, God, you, Spirit, are at work always. You are doing the work that you never get distracted. You're always doing the work that's been laid out before you to do and you're always glorifying Jesus and the Father. And we thank you for that. We ask that you would fill us up to give us a, a new taste, to deepen our relationship with you. And in this meal, would you convey that? Would you offer that to us? It, it, this, this meal is a sign of that, that as we take the, the, the bread and the wine and we literally insert it into our mouth, that it goes into our body, that the Spirit is in us now. We praise you, Spirit. We thank you. We worship you. It's in your name, in Jesus' name we pray.